Hi, I'm Bill Overton, and we continue our series with our second episode, which centers around how players from the Negro Leagues developed into professional baseball players. Some players were able to take advantage of organized baseball in high school or organized league play in the cities they grew up in. Most of those used their athletic skill and love of the game to reach professional levels in their teenage years. Imagine playing professional baseball when you were 15 or 16 years old. A combination of mostly self-taught skills, love of the game, and advice and knowledge from older players were the building blocks of the professional Negro League players. Here's Ron Barr from Sports Byline USA talking with pitcher Leo Westbrook about his early years playing baseball. Willie Mays is a friend of mine, and I remember talking to Willie about the Negro Leagues, and he was saying he was 16 years old and he was playing professional baseball with the Birmingham Black Barons at at that particular time. And and I'm just wondering, uh, that's amazing to think that all these players, when they were 16, 17, even younger, 15 years old, were playing professional baseball. You know, I was playing with lots of full-grown men at the age of, of probably 14 and 15 years old. And we were, it was a mixture of um, 13 and 14 year old kids like myself, my brother, and, and others uh, that was playing, like I said, playing with uh, these uh, grown ups, some of them probably in their 30s or maybe 40s. And they were very good ball players, but we were able to uh, compete. And I remember when I came here at 17, it was uh, uh, in the Chicago area, it was almost like a Class A, a double-A baseball, you know. And immediately after I got here, it was a team by the name of Chicago Cardinals, Mr. Uh, Thomas. And as soon as I got here, he had me to go out and pitch. And I wondered, I said, well, I'm not sure how I'm going to fare out here because these guys probably have much more experience than I have. But I was able to go out there and compete. And it turned out uh, that I ended up being his number one pitcher. Former catcher and pitcher Ernest Fan remembers that they would do anything to find a way to play baseball when he was young. We didn't have anything but a pair of short pants barefoot, boom stick, and a tennis ball, or whatever kind of stick we can shape like a bat. And we would be out there all day on a Saturday. We we, we couldn't go out there on Sunday because our mother made us go to church. (laughs) But that's how I learned how to play baseball. Pitcher Don Woods recalls that the talent level was extremely high even when he was young. Well, I tell you, what happened especially with the, the, the players of my age, we were the players that played day and night. We went out in the summertime, played early in the morning, all the way into the evening. And the community in which I live, I felt that uh, quite a few of them were very athletic and possibly possibly could have been, been a, a focal point in the uh, major league in trying to make their niche into the baseball game. Don was one of the few who was able to rise and organize the youth leagues. It was pretty popular. Uh, where I was, they had a, a Woodlawn Boys Club who had a league, and there were maybe 
eight or nine teams who competed. At the high school level, there was a uh, teams from different sections of the city who competed for a citywide championship and went on to represent Chicago and various other uh, entities throughout Chicagoland area. Many others had to learn that came through unorthodox means, especially in the South. Here again is Leo Westbrook. Was able to uh, do things with the uh, uh, the white kids and adults, and 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 I'll tell you this story real quick. We lived in the country, uh, you know, a good while early on, and the first football, baseball, and basketball I ever touched was um, a young uh, a white boy that lived uh, right over from us. His parents owned a plantation. And uh, his mother and father, they allowed us to come over and play with Jim Corder, and his sister was Kate. They allowed us to come over and play with uh, with him anytime we wanted to. And we was able to, we had uh, was at liberty to do whatever we wanted to do, as long as it was then what young kids are supposed to do. And I never forget, this is the thing I remember the most. We had played outside for quite a while, and it was hot. And we, uh, Jim said, well, it's time for us to get a break. Let's go in and get some something cold to drink. He said, we said, okay. So we headed to the back door. He said, where are you all going? We said, we're going to the back to, uh, he said, I know for what. I, I, he, we told him, said, well, Jim, uh, we don't know that, you know, it's proper for us to come. To, he said, look. He said, Leo and Joe, as long as you are here playing with us, this is totally uh, appropriate. And I don't ever want to see you guys heading to the back door, not here. <laughs> so, uh, and I tried to look him up and let him know how things, what he'd done, uh, what part it played uh, with my brother and I, what we'd done after we left the South. So, um, uh, because he became, he, he didn't play professional baseball, but he became uh, a lieutenant of police force and a chief of police in a small town in the suburbs of Dalton. So I just wanted him to know that what he'd done for us didn't go to waste. You know, in the country, we played, there were um, what they call uh, sandlot baseball teams around the country. And that was the height of uh, a baseball playing in the South. So uh, from what I understand that uh, some uh, businessmen got together and put together some teams that turned out to be the Memphis Red Sox, the Birmingham Black Barons, and Kansas City Monarchs, and on and on. And from that, Baseball uh, began to grow, and uh, we didn't have no coaches or managers that had any experience in baseball, but we was able to get um, our knowledge from some of the older guys that I guess they just kind of learned it on their own. And and that's how uh, we really got started, and that was the pretty much um, a big thing you know, down there, uh, that uh, sandlot baseball, playing out in those pastures and different where they get enough land. As Leo mentioned, 
many of the players relied on the older, more experienced players to teach them the finer points of the game and about life. Here's Dennis Biddle, former pitcher and head of yesterday's Negro Leagues Baseball Players Organization, remembering the influence of the older players. I look back and I said, we were like the kids. They were like adults and we were like, see the boss were like home. And they, they were, and we did something wrong. We got yelling. And, uh, and, 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 and so many times the, the older guys would, would put us in position where we had to make decisions that would help us later on in life. And I'm appreciative, appreciative for to this day. Yes, I did a lot of a thing that uh, because I was, I had to, but I considered learning life, learning about life. When I look back over my life in those years, I'm thankful to those old men who took us young men under their wings and prepared us for life. Professor Leslie Heffy, baseball historian, discusses the impact of the older players providing leadership and advice to the young players. It's it's a fascinating thing to think about because I think on the one side for the the young the young guys coming up, right, getting that chance to um, meet not just meet players that they had heard about, right, the Satchels, the Josh Gibsons of the world, but now they're getting to play alongside and to learn from. And so there's that sense of um, awe, sense of you're joining something that is clearly important, that clearly is something to be proud of, that you're, and so therefore there's an expectation of behavior, et cetera, et cetera, that you hope to learn from these players because you recognize that your participation in the Negro Leagues is something that your families are proud of, your communities are proud of, they're going to look to. And so how do you learn those kinds of things? And so looking to these older players um, to provide some of that. And then on the reverse side, you know, um, you've got Jackie Robinson, right? Who, yeah, when he enters the major leagues is 27 years old, right? Um, but he's also encountering Satchel Page and others who are certainly older than he is. And that year when he's with the Kansas City Monarchs, the whole idea that he's there to learn and that they're going to provide guidance for him, not just on the field, but in life. And so there's a lot of that that goes on as well, because, you know, Willie Mays, when he's 17, 16, 17 years old, is experiencing a world he's never experienced. So who does he learn from? Who does he turn to, to watch, to ask questions, to learn to grow up, right? It's going to be these other players who've had these long-standing and have had these experiences for many, many years. Pitches Eugene Scruggs and Dennis Biddle remember the opportunity to play with some of the biggest stars in baseball. Well, it was, you know, I was used to playing maybe once a week, but when I got to the point where I was playing every day, it was a whole lot different. Uh, baseball had come into a grown man game then, you know, I was just a boy. You know, it was... Um, you had hard, you had some heavy hitters on them teams at that time, you know, just like uh, uh, Herman Green, uh, Juan Soleil. You know, I'm 17 years old, 
I'm traveling with these old superstars. I'm listening to them talk about what has happened down to the years. I'm, I consider I was learning about life. My mom and dad raised me. I left home to go to play in the Negro Baseball League. Here I am in this mean world. I'm learning about life from these old living legends. Although the younger players lacked experience, their athletic ability and their prowess to play multiple positions made them ideal players in the Negro Leagues. His pitcher, Hank Mason. I think the talent that uh, that we had, we could do almost anything on the uh, baseball field. You know, there were some guys that could catch, could play first base, could play second base, but I think uh, I could pitch and play third base and outfield and everything like that. Because if you were going to stay in a game, you had to hit, you had to butt, you had to do everything right. And uh, every pitcher in the Negro League wanted to stay in the game just as long as they could. And I wanted to stay in the game. I could lay down a bun, I could hit the right field behind the runner, I could hit uh, not uh, as good as some of the other hitters that uh, was at the plate every day, but I could hit the ball. We had to play everything if we wanted to stay on the team. Again, we hear from pitcher Dennis Bitt. Back when I played, I, was real, I could run real fast. I could really hit. I bet it switch-handed, left and the right side. I was more valuable to the team than some guy that was just an average player because I could play many positions. Anybody that could play that way in the Negro League was more valuable to the team because of that. For many, the opportunity to enter the league came down to injury and the need of a team to immediately fill a position. Here's second baseman, Nate Dancy. Okay, the first time that I got introduced to the Negro League was in Memphis, Tennessee, the Memphis Red Sox. And the manager was Goose Curry, Mr. Goose Curry. And my brother played first base for, for the Red Sox. And I went over there to see him play. And the, and the shortstop got hurt. So they didn't have nobody else to play. And my brother, and my, uh, my, father, my brother told uh, the manager, said, my little brother, that he can play in field. And he, he said, what did he do? He, he said, send his stand. So he came over and asked me, hey, little dancer, what position you play? I said, I play second base and shortstop, anywhere in the infield and outfield. I just I play baseball. So he asked me, can you play a shortstop? I said, sure, I can play. Okay. And and uh, after when that first happened, I got a chance to play. He said, you got a glove? I yes, I got my glove right here. I had it twist up and back in my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> So he come right, they gave me some uniform, gave me a uniform, I dressed in a dugout, went right on the field, started playing. And the first time I got up, I hit a single up the middle and, and turned it to turn single into a double. And they saw me say, oh, you can run too. <laughs> and they were, the next exciting play I remember is a guy hit a baseball, hit a, hit a shot in the hole. And I backhanded and threw the guy out the first base and didn't make all the people in the stand just stood up and applauded me. And ever since then, I was I really was too young to be playing. But uh, Mr. Curry got my parents to sign a consent for me to play. And that's how I got introduced to the Memphis Red Sox. Again, we hear from pitcher Dennis Bitt. A lot of 
time, the Negro League player would get injured. The manager would try. That player is no more use for the, for the team. The team that we are playing against, and we played a lot of local teams. This is how the Negro League was made up of local teams. They call it bumps, Tony. But that was a way of life for the Negro Baseball League. And some of those teams, and I can truthfully say this because I was there, some of those teams we played local were just as good as we were. But they couldn't leave home and travel like we did. But if a player got hurt on our team, the manager would try the, the, the player from the other team, the best player they assume he was the best player, the player they liked, they would try to get him to come over and travel and play with the Negro League team. This is how a lot of players had the opportunity to play in the Negro Baseball League. This is how it was done. A lot of times, a player would get hurt. He's no good to the, to the team anymore that year. So they would contract another player from the other team that we were playing against to play in the Negro Baseball League. Others like pitcher Hank Mason got their chance but lacked perspective on how talented they were until they played. And I didn't think that I was the caliber of baseball player that uh, could play with the uh, Kansas City Monarchs. And after I got there, you know, when I went there, I was a third baseman. And, uh, and a pretty good one at that. And uh, he told me, he said, uh, he hit me some balls down to third base. And he said, uh, now listen, Hank, I, uh, I've got a good third baseman. Is it anything else you can do? And I said, yeah, I can pitch some. He said, okay, then I want you to go down in the bullpen and get loosened up real good, and I'll be down there in a little bit. I said, okay. So I went down, and, and, and I got my arm loosened up real good, and he came down, and I threw him a couple of fastballs, about 95 miles an hour. And he said, you got anything else? I said, yeah, I got a curveball, slider, change up. And, and I threw him a slider and a curveball. And he said, hey, do you think you can be up here tomorrow at 10 o'clock because we're going south? I said, I, I think so. He said, well, I want to take you with me. Oh, that's the first time I met Buck O'Neill. One of the things that surprises me, Hank, about what you just said, had you been a pitcher before? Because you said that you were a third baseman, but yet you had an array of pitches. Where did you develop those pitches if indeed you were not a pitcher? You know, I really don't know. I guess uh, uh, it, it was just a gift from God. Uh, I played uh, third base for the Marshall Blue Sox most of my life. And uh, then when they didn't have a pitcher, uh, they would uh, say, hey, can you pitch today? I said, yeah. So I pitched today, you know. And uh, another guy named George Walker, uh, uh, he would teach me, you know, some things about pitching. But I think it was just a gift from God. Pitcher Dennis Biddle ends our episode with an antidote memorializing an older mentor they called Cool Papa Bill. I, I remember one game, and I saw this, 53. Mr. James Bell, they called him Cool Papa Bell. Now, he was 50 years old, and he was training us 
how to round the base at Old Comiskey Park in Chicago. I'll never forget him. He was in an exhibition game. We had it somewhere. And he, he stole second, and then he stole first again, just to prove how fast he was. <laughs> but this was just clowning in the game. But the man was known as the fastest human to play baseball. And he, he told me, he said, you heard that a lot Sacha Page said about me. He called me kid too. All of them called me kids. I said, no, he said, Sacha told a lie about Come on, he could, I was so fast that I, you could turn the light out in the room and I could be in the bed before it ever got dark. He said, but I was faster than that. <laughs> he said, I'm the only baseball player that can hit a line drive over second and then get called out when the ball hit me in the back when I round the sucker. Behind the Barrier, Voices from the Negro Leagues is narrated by Bill Overton, produced by Taylor Haber. Executive producers are Jason Weichelt, Darren Peck, and Ron Barr. Please check out our next episode, as well as the episodes in this series. This series is distributed by Sports Byline USA and the Eight Side Network.